hey there, Daryl. Good evening to you. <laughs> Good evening to you too, Alexis. How's it going? Not too shabby, not too shabby. It was a beautiful day on Jeju. Oh, Spring yeah. is sprung, as they like to say. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't know. I was just inside the whole day. I never. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I look out of my window and go, ha. Huh. People are out there having a good time. And well, let me ask you a question. Outside your window, can you at least see some cherry blossoms? Because it's season. <laughs> no, no, I, I cannot. But there, there's a whole row right by my house. It's oh, that's far, nice. Have you taken right? the family out walking and got the uh, oblig obligatory uh, snapshots? Yeah, I don't. Uh, it's just, I'm not a big. I mean, I, yes, they're lovely. I'm not the Here biggest. Here we go again with grumpy, grumpy, grumps <laughs> yeah, I mean, They're fine. Right. Like they're, they're lining the streets on Jungmoon, right? So, right, right. you know, and uh, it it attracts crowds and tourists <laughs> and that are just asking to be hit by cars. Have you noticed that? You are such an old gram. Um, it's funny, though. I was just driving down your street on a Saturday evening. I was uh -huh. down in your hood and was on that uh, Cherry Blossom Line street. And it was raining in the city. But down yeah. in your end of the uh, woods, it was perfectly amazing. Yeah. I, I stopped and took a million photos. South side is uh, rules. It's, it's the preferred <laughs> side of the island. Do you want to get a t-shirt that says that? Southside rules. Southside rules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Middle-aged man. <laughs> just, yeah, just add to your, just add to your Grampy Gramps version. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no. So, I... Well, for our for our followers, our listeners on Instagram, I will definitely put up some uh, photos of the cherry blossoms for any uh -huh. of you past Jeju folks that miss it over here. I'll, I'll put them. I'll put some shots up on Insta uh -huh. and in Facebook. We'll cross post. So, so do you like? skulk around the island looking for spots or something <laughs> i do i do skulk around the island but i actually also have uh, my own secret spots uh-huh that i and, like to go to and where pray tell these secret spots may be for sure i'm not telling it on the podcast for sure <laughs> I, don't, I don't want a million people there this right. is how uh waitlegate got ruined People started putting it right. in, you know, in blog posts and telling we everyone the location. We used to go location. swimming there. And now, like, in that little grotto area. And yep. now it's it's a yep. bunch of people taking pictures, just like but, the Jerry well, Bond. People still go swimming, but compared to, like, in 2012, 2014, when there was, like, maybe eight people total, right. now they bring tour buses in of tourists. Mm -hmm. So on any given hot summer day, you can have, like, 80 people there. So where are some places that people could see them, though, that you will let people know about? <laughs> know that they can go on to the Jeju National University Drive because right. that whole beautiful stretch going into the university is is lined. Uh -huh. And then my second favorite is and my second favorite is the um Jeju Stadium right outside the city. Yeah, is right. The dog gonna say hi to us again? Uh, yeah, the dog. Um <laughs> yeah, the Jeju yeah, that's that's true. There are a couple quite 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 nice spots on Jeju 4 cherry blossoms. I can't think of them at the moment, but definitely J J and U. Uh, yeah. I used and to. And stadium. They have like a. Isn't there like a cherry blossom festival most years? But yeah, so they used year? to have the festival at the stadium, and then they moved it down the road. So Jung Moon has the the tourist street, right. and then we have the stadium, and then and now the festival. Of course, not this year, but now the festival is right outside city city hall. Uh -huh. And I don't know the name of that street, unfortunately, but it's in between Tapdong and and Shichung. Right. Right. Isn't. So Good luck Is finding it? that, everybody. <laughs> yeah, those are great. Sure, Solid you directions. It. You yeah. can't miss it. Go down the road as if you're going to this ocean. Swivel mm. your head left. If you see cherry blossoms, turn that way. Aren't they by Yongduam too? Yongduam, yeah. the dragon head rock? Oh, that's probably true, maybe. Well, now we're maybe. just guessing. That's not yeah. Wild yeah, that's shit. not very helpful to people. They're on the island. Go see them <laughs> if you're here. Check them out. Check them out. Yeah. So I yeah. have to tell you, I also went last week. I went to the cherry. I mean, the fire festival. Oh, did you? You actually got tickets to that, huh? I did. And listen, I had a lot of doubts because I was like, well, wh you know, what, what should, you know, what should it be like? Uh -huh. um, sorry, my my camera's going out. And I was thinking, you know, how's this going to be? We're all going to be sitting in the car. Right. This is going to be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But you know what, Daryl? It yeah. was absolutely amazing. Oh, really? 
They did such a good job with it. I, mm. once again, Korea slash Jeju, props for me for trying to make things as normal as it possibly can be. And that mm. was fantastic. I will say, though, yeah. I was in Section A, and I was in the first row in my car, so we had an unobscured view of the mountain going up on oh, fire. Well, I've seen pictures from it. Like, Yunhap had pictures of it, and it looked really cool to see the reflections of the fire and the fireworks off the hoods. Off in the, the cars, Yeah, friends. it's really neat. Yeah, it was really amazing. Um, I also saw a few pictures of the car, you know, the the back shot with all the cars lined up in the fire. It was really cool. But what was going on? Like, what was actually there other than, like, I saw a video of the fireworks and stuff, which is cool, and the COVID get out. But, like, what else? Like, was there anything else? Well, I'll tell you this. If you saw the video for our, our for our listeners, I will post on Facebook a YouTube link that the government provided so that everyone mm. can see and you can see what was going on. So they had set up a stage, as usual, right under the autumn, and it had all the performances like they would every year, except right. there was um, no no audience. We were just in our cars and they piped the music in and you could also turn on the radio station and oh, listen cool. to the music. So, however, I was in the front row of section a so Uh the speaker was right there and the mountain was right there so we it was really really just again good job jju how long was it like the length of the event i saw the the fireworks was like eight minutes or something like that which is cool yeah yeah the actual the actual mountain and the fireworks were over real quick but uh i was a little anxious to to i think it's gonna be my last one on jju so i was anxious to get there so i grabbed my girlfriends and we got there we got there pretty early i'd say we got there by five o'clock to get the front row Uh and then we just snacked and chatted and i thought you weren't allowed to eat in your car yeah but, oh you could leave your car you had to turn on your hazards to get escorted to the bathroom <laughs> right <laughs> that's a very no, no dignified symbol uh-huh. yeah no complaints we had the best time oh, that's my girlfriends great. went with me had the best time we were really really it was uh it was a great 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 event oh perfect that sounds like a blast i yeah. kind of wish i went <laughs> you I, I wish I went now. No, you don't, yeah. grumpy Gramps. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess that's now time for uh, our second version, not version, segment of Jeju Dialect Corner. Okay, with our teacher, Hyunjung. All right, so it's time for another segment of Jeju Dialect Corner brought to you by GS25 and Jungmoon across the street from the Uche Guk. When the you're, place to get all your tasty treats. All your tasty treats and beverages and libations. When in June Moon, make sure to hit up the GS25 by the bus station across from the post office. Now, with us is my lovely dog, for those who can see, and our wonderful sense in Hyunjung. Hello. Thank you for being here again by Hello. by by choice, obviously. <laughs> Hi, Hyunjung. Hi. <laughs> nice I, to see you. Y- yeah, nice to see you too. <laughs> so I gotta tell you, the last uh, the last word we did, little bit hard for me to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to this segment and seeing how much better uh, how much better my Jeju dialect improves. Okay. So yeah. So what what one more time? What did we do last time? Miran Goran Shini. Actually, last time like there we learned yeah Moren Goran Shini. That means. What are you saying? Right. That's the uh, name of this section, right? <laughs> yes. As a placeholder. And now what are we learning today? Today, like you guys a- asked. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, so hello uh-huh. in Jejudo Saturi, uh-huh. Jeju dialect. Uh, actually, like I had to think about like hello in Jejudo dialect. Because oh, really? I don't think like, yeah, not really use... We say hello, mm-hmm. so I had to call my dad to <laughs> like, what's what's mm. in Jeju Satri? Like, and he said, we don't say hello when we meet people. Not really. Mm-hmm. Instead, like we, my father said, like, odero gamsugang. Oh yeah, that's much easier. Yeah, odero gamsugang. That means where are you going? That's usually like. Oh. They uh, use instead of like say like hello. Yeah. Uh, so so you, one more time. You're passing someone on the street and you're not gonna say hi. You're gonna be like, so where are you going today? Mm. Yes. Oh, that's that's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you say it one more time? Oh, 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 day. 
어대로 감수강. 감수강 is the Jeju dialect part, right? 어대로. Yeah. Yeah. 오 is 오다, which means to come yeah, or to go. Also, like 어대로 is like 아니 어디래 감수강. 어디래 감수강. 어디래 감수강. 어디래 감수강. Okay, you try, Alexis. Go. No, no, no. You know what? I I have learned what I need is I need the a phonetic spelling like in right. front of my face because I just can't do it. It is so embarrassing. Oh, uh, oh. Uh, Okay, so why don't we try the uh, the easier, the one that will probably come more often, which is how do you say thank you in Jeju Satori? Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, um, we say. Kumapsuda? Kumapsuda. Kumapsuda, yeah. And what is, it, what is it typically in Korean? Right, so then say, yeah, say yeah. again in Jeju. Oh, so the ending dae. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You can do that. I, I usually just say da And people, and if you say this to our listeners, love say, you. Yeah, you know, say this when you go shopping uh, to your favorite, like, Odang place, you'll get extra food. They love it. You you get huge Jejudo street cred from the South Side. You know, if you say Kumap Suda. Uh, actually, like I remember, like it's almost like ten years ago when we lived in Seoul, mm-hmm. and Daryl used to say like Kumap Suda all the time. So like he thought we are still on Jeju Island. People would and, like, me. Yeah, and like, yeah. at the, like a convenience store, like he said like Kumap Suda, and then. Like people in Seoul, like what? Like they were like looking at him like weirdly. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Or sometimes on the island, if I say that, I did say that before. People would correct me. So, so today's words again are. 어디로 감수강? 어디로 감수강? And. 고맙습니다. 선생님 현정 고맙습니다. No. Thank you. No. <laughs> you learned. You learned. Yeah, kumapsuda. Uh, Thank you very thank much. You, and that's that'll do another segment of uh Moraigo, our Jeju Saturday dialect corner, brought to you by GS25 and Jungmoon. When in Jungmoon, hit up GS25. And yeah, so that was a another a segment of the Jeju dialect corner. I hope I hope uh your satori is coming along nicely there, Alexis. Well, mine not so much. I have to wait just like our listeners, and I need to wait for the phonetic spelling that you, uh. you, you print up on the thing. So for our listeners, please do come to our Instagram pages, our um, our Facebook page. We will put the we put the Jeju dialect on there so mm. you can listen and read at the same time, which is the way my brain works. Mm. So now we're, we're running kind of a little bit out of time here, so we might have to mm-hmm. muscle through some stuff. Absolutely, that, uh, let's do it is is kind of important so you know uh, what happened in the last little while uh that is that didn't actually get a lot of immediate attention unfortunately mm-hmm. is the fact that on jeju uh the largest ever uh court case was held on march 16th involving 333 uh defendants it's the Jeez. largest yeah, and uh, the is defendant... that the largest for Jeju ever, or just about this specific uh, trial? Largest in Korea ever. Oh my gosh! It's Are the most defendants. Yeah, yeah, okay. because and it has to do with, uh, of course, Sasam, the Jeju four three, the Jeju four three right. massacre, because right. the three hundred thirty three defendants were cleared of their like insurrection. Uh, yeah charges which right. you know and it's huge so this it's a, was a huge complete dismissal of charges yeah yeah they had <laughs> they had 21 sessions from 10 a.m to 6 a.m in like blocks right so 21 sessions there was like 10 or whatever defendants tried on that most of them aren't living anymore right like there was like family right. members doing it things for like that. their names yeah, to get them expunged because the, right. it's still a criminal record, and those criminal yeah. records yeah. followed them, prevented them from getting work, prevented their family from getting work, you know, and which is a stain on their name, yeah, you know. Yeah. But yeah. this is the culmination of like years of work by um, 
the Jeju 43 People's Solidarity Organization, which right. started like doing research on uh, those convicted in court martials, right? These were two court martials where uh, in 1948 and 1949, where 2,530 people were convicted in mass, right? Like at the same time, 350 people, or 305 people were given life imprisonment. Uh, 384 people were executed. That's Jeez. what those bodies, I believe, at the airport are. Okay. Right, because that was one of the court-martial sites. Jeez, wow. Right. So, when you, like I said before, when you land on tarmac, you're landing on the, the bodies of uh, awful, the, the awful history here, you know? And it's, it's, it's vindictive, like, it's, no, it's not vindictive, it's vindicating for them, right? And their families. That's an important word to make sure you get right. It's vindicating for these families, absolutely. Right, yeah, because um, it was a scarlet letter, for lack of a better term. It was something that haunted them. Right. You know, people left so, the island because of so it, because of the war. You, at the beginning, you said for, you you mentioned very quickly, you said it doesn't seem to have gotten a lot of coverage, media coverage. Do you have any opinions on why that is? Because I think you're right. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody, I haven't seen it pop up in, mm. you know, my Korean threads and things like that. You know, I, we'll get, we'll probably get into a little bit of this later when we talk okay. to our guest, uh, nice. who's coming on, Bre Brendan Wright. And, but it's also, Jeju doesn't get a lot of attention normally. Right. That's why it's really important when the president came to the 4-3 event, because the president always gets coverage. Right. Exactly. That's They'll, exactly right. So when the president comes, then people pay attention. It's it, it, it. And I don't I don't really know why. Maybe because it's still so political. Maybe because it's also it's complicated. Right. Like you want to get to the next like the the nit and gritty about these charges and the fact that there was no like they couldn't find evidence about them. It's it's not. It's a little bit more complicated than just a, a simple story, right? So Agreed. maybe that's Agreed. why. And not even just as not not even just as court case is complicated, but the whole issue is complicated. I mean, we've right. talked about this in previous episodes. I believe scholars spend lifetimes uncovering and discussing mm. and you know the whole four three and and I think we'll go into this later about mm. how four three led up to other things. Right. Um, so I mean, this is people's whole realm of study can just be mm. about this one subject. So for it's yeah, mm. it's and a lot. Just, it's a lot to yeah. take in. And, and, you know, I just, like, when I heard it, I just took a moment to just think about the people that I had interviewed who are convicted in these court martials, right? Like, there was this one woman who was a 16-year-old Henyo who, um, yeah, she had put her name down on a list that she thought was to go to the mainland for uh, for work during the, okay. uh, the early days of the massacre. And what it was, it was actually was a list of, like, communist registry. And somebody found the registry— and uh, the police did not somebody the police found the registry saw yeah. her name on it and she was convicted to 10 months in prison um but it wasn't so much the 10 months that was the problem it was the fact that like she couldn't get married she couldn't get a job that affected Jeez, yeah. her children you know and most of the people who were convicted were sent to the mainland right with these longer sentences and um which they had to live out like one guy i spoke to was arrested on the mainland and then was released when the Korean War happened. I think okay. he may have been released by North Koreans that were advancing. But Jeez. then after the Korean War, he had to go back to jail to finish the rest of his sentence. They, they let him out to fight and then he had to go back and serve his sentence. Yeah, I don't think he fought, actually. I think they let him out and he just like, you stay here, you're going to be killed. So go. Oh, so mercy, a mercy release. I suppose so. Yeah. See, and this is what I mean when you say it's it's little details like that. It's they're never ending. Like I had mm. never heard a story like that. But Daryl, do tell me. Let's go back and what happened to the Henya woman? Did you interview her recently? I interviewed her back in 2019. She was exonerated. Is so she, she here now on Jeju? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the people that I mentioned, I interviewed back in 2019. They were the okay. first people to be exonerated during those case, the court cases back then. Those first cases, then. okay. Yeah. yeah. And they were the ones that were awarded 4.4 million, a combined 4.4 million US dollars. Divided amongst those certain amount of people. The 18 people. I remember people. that. I remember yeah. that was huge news on J2. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that, the, these are the people that I'm referring to now that I spoke to then. I actually okay. plan to interview them again, or at least some of them again shortly, because 
uh, yeah. well, for, for my project what... that I'm working on, but also to make sure that we have their their information you know their, and their stories voices. keep giving keep giving them a chance to they haven't had a you know all these chances to be heard and mm. have their voices heard so any sort of opportunity yeah. if they're willing seems like a good thing for this country and a good thing for jeju yeah well i was interviewing a woman on the weekend on sunday for like three hours and oh. yeah and i asked her like are you okay talking about this for so long like do you want to and she was right she was more than happy to because uh, she said it's a good way to kill time but she also said <laughs> like uh, i can finally talk about this now because they couldn't talk right. about it for 2000 it must be such a release so daryl so that first batch were was given a monetary reward yeah. um and we talked about this a little bit last week uh, mm. our last podcast i mean mm. so has there been any more news about this latest bunch of 300 and no. some people is there has there been any news about a monetary about uh, reparations reward? Oh, yeah, rep yeah, sorry, that's a much better um, word. You know, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that because that's also okay. involved in the special act that passed okay. that we talked okay. about. So the reparations might be part of that. Okay. The people that I spoke to went to court seeking the reparations. Right, of course. Right. So, so this, if it's in the law, they may not have to because the law does address uh, ex like the people who were wrongly convicted in the courts martial. So you're saying perhaps that this new law is going to clear everybody's name, but there won't be a perhaps there won't be a money attachment to it. No, I'm saying that the new law will pr might have a money monetary okay. attachment and, for it because it does mention known, reparations. They're not advertising it right now, basically. I, it's it's one of these laws that's going to take a long time. Like they need to okay. like set aside a budget for that piece kind of, of stuff. Piece, they need to get it out. Okay. Yeah, okay. but it just it opens the avenue for that to happen. Right, Huge so it's going to be news for Jeju. Yeah, Huge really news. big news. Good news. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that leads into April third is coming up. So right. the anniversary, uh, not the anniversary, the memorial, some the anniversary, whatever song. you want to call it. So mm -hmm. that's going to be a big news. Maybe the president will come. That we usually find out later. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they don't advertise that so so much in advance. Well, and of course, this case in, this year with COVID, there's uh -huh. certainly whoever is invited. It's certainly going to be a well spaced event, and probably not like previous years. Well, you know? and, be and because of these two events, it's actually going to, I imagine, get a little bit more attention, especially I because so. of the the law that passed, right? So. And so yeah. people are going to talk about that, give speeches. Um, then hopefully it'll give more time. But uh, we're going to speak with uh, a, a Jeju. Well, not even a Jeju scholar, a Korea scholar that has right. studied the Jeju massacre and uh, talk to him more about the importance of what happened here. I think that's going to be really interesting. And I believe, you know, I believe, well, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think we're mm. probably going to get some broader history that uh, mm. that's not just about Jeju, but leads into other things. So that'll be really interesting. So everyone stay tuned. So following our March 1st shooting episode podcast, uh, I got a message from a Canadian scholar, Brendan Wright, concerning some of the things that I may have glossed over slightly in my summarization of trying to come up with a shorter, shorthand of what they were protesting that day on March 1st, 1947. So I thought, why not invite him onto the podcast and get into a little bit more about the history of what or how 4-3 Jeju Massacre happened. So thank you for coming on to the podcast, Brendan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, nice uh, to see you, Brendan. Thank you. Yeah, nice to see you. I should mention that Brendan's a lecturer at St. Mary's University, and he does research on anti-left massacres during the Korean War um, with a framing work of memory politics of these massacres is that a good way to summarize yeah, it yeah i just say ma mass violence and memory politics because um, yeah I, I kind of do a bit of both yeah oh perfect so i guess uh let's get at it and say what are some of the factors that led to the march 1st shooting incident where six people were killed and eight were injured that kind of went to the beginning of the massacre 
Yeah, right. So just to give a, I, I sort of brought it on myself to, to come onto this podcast <laughs> by challenging uh, some of what you claimed. Uh, so I just want to say, first of all, uh, to yourself and your viewer, I actually really liked your uh, discussion of it. And I actually learned some things I, I didn't know, which is not always the case, uh, especially at the <laughs> hospital. But uh, to give people some background, I took a little umbrage with the idea that they were uh, protesting the division uh, mm. of Korea. Um, now, I think some of it's tricky because there's the March 1st incident, then there's what's called the 4-3 uprisings. Um, by the time of the 4-3 uprisings, um, the position was, or at least one of the official reasons, was opposing the um, separate elections in the South. Um, and some of this was indeed, um, we could say, a kind of national uh, resistance or a way to prevent uh, the division of Korea. But the other side of the coin is that um, the unification elections were going to be a very bad thing for the local left. Uh, so some of this was to prevent uh, the further erosion of their position in Cheju's politics. Now, uh, about the March 1st uprisings, um, now or the protests, um, it, it gets a little complicated because there's what the people of Cheju were protesting, and then there's how they were organized. And um, we don't wow. know where one begins and where one ends. Um, so sure. at least the primary groups who organized the protest uh, and led the speeches were tied um, to the um, Cheju left and the, the Workers' Party and um, the People's Committees. And and um, you can see from their speeches, they were demanding, among other things, um, the resurrection of the People's Committees because uh, Cheju had lost a lot of its sovereignty uh, with the uh, integration of the province into the mainland. And with that was also a shift in political power uh, to the right, who were more aligned with the central government and a decline of the local left power. Um, so that's the political context. But also in their speeches, they're um, asking, for example, for the withdrawal of the arrest warrant uh, for Pak Han Young, who was the leader of the South Korean uh, Workers' Party. So quite mm -hmm. clearly there is um, a kind of a, a, what we could see as a left-wing um, tone uh, to these protests. Now, mm -hmm. as far as the people in Cheju protesting, there was a lot of things happening. Uh, with that process, uh, there was an increased tax burden uh, on the population. There was a massive increase in police, including police from the mainland. There was right. uh, loss of local autonomy from many uh, village elders who were respected. Uh, so these things are not uh, what we could consider to be properly ideological in left-right terms. So um, like two two different situations coming together to form one, basically? Um, yeah, or part of a process that we can okay. see from different mm. angles, like one being, okay. you know, uh, definitely political leaders fighting over control of things, uh, but then, uh, you know, the, the society being engulfed in this. Uh, and there's yeah. an ideological context, and then there's an institutional context to it. Yeah, yeah do like, you think that politics, do you think the JG people were being led a certain way? Um, it's it's hard for me to tell because I, okay. I you know, we don't quite know um, what um, you know there is going on in their their consciousness. The the position of the Americans at the time, who were quite uh, you know, just chauvinistic and bigoted about this, was that the Cheju people were ignorant and didn't know better, and then right. were susceptible to the extreme right and the extreme mm -hmm. left and didn't know what was good for them. Um, but you know, I I think a lot of it has to do with the actual structure, and this was true it, more so in Cheju, but true of a lot of Korea, where uh, a lot of actually uh, authority was was in local uh, village leaders like Im Yeonjang or some of the thought Absolutely. leaders who were who were tied to these communities. So. Uh, you know, we have to get into that level, mm -hmm. and I haven't done a lot of research on what, what was going on at that level, but I don't okay. think it, you know, it's a layered structure, uh, and I don't think it's the case where they're ideological, but they're not apolitical. You know, either. I got you. It's interesting that you mentioned about the, the Americans, right? Because part of the <laughs> reason why um, the left had such a strong hold on JJ was because following liberation, the 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 workers party was the only was the essentially the de facto government on Jeju for like an entire year so when they killed when they killed off when they got rid of when they banned the the party from functioning they had they had already been the government so my question what is is that the stance the bigoted stance of the americans is kind of what why they didn't have a government on Jeju for an entire year beforehand 
Is that something that allowed um, that to happen? The vacuum? I don't think it's quite the big, bigoted sense. I think a lot of the, the vacuum just had to do with, with where it was in terms of its uh, political mm. geography and uh, just its rank of importance. Like, uh, you know, it's an isolated island from the mainland. Um, the way the Americans worked out in terms of how they uh, overtook and dismantled mm. um, the, the autonomous powers of the People's Committees or the, the kind of uh, Korea People's Republic was they branched out in Seoul and then moved out into the areas, right? And then um, it's telling that, you know, the big uprisings happened furthest um, away from the capital first in uh, in and around Tegu in 46 and then in mm -hmm. Jeju because these periods had the longest period of um, people's committees, uh, gestation and autonomy. Um, so, you know, it's, it could be I, I don't think it's the, the first uh priority was was kind of like an act of bigotry towards change right. which just in, in terms of imperial geography this okay. is just not sure. that and that's a good point americans uh, didn't get here really for a couple is, months yeah. anyways like before jeju they took them a while to get here i believe right uh, yeah and they mm. saw it as i mean looking at the documents um there's, there's different ways of looking at it because one is you know that iconic image where they're showing uh taking down the japanese flag and putting up the american flag so it's right. quite imperial but then the other yeah. side of it it's broadly a hands-off uh imperialism at the first time at least from an administrative uh perspective and mm -hmm. the americans just saw the people's committee as kind of benign you know there, uh, the time. there's this piece of research that i've been sitting on and i have like i don't have i don't know what to do with it is the fact that when i was i found out that some of the americans that were on jeju their families were here with them oh right? wow that's fascinating yeah you you're probably more knowledgeable about the american context uh, mm -hmm. than i am and i'd be interested to to learn more about that so they're yeah. Uh, where are they based in Cheju in the in the city or? Yeah, well, Gwendokjong, right? They, yeah. Well, they had uh, close to the where the May Mar the March first shooting incident happened, right? But it's yeah. like when you look at some of the files and some of the declassified transcripts and whatnot, there's a lot of corruption, but it's not this mm. like corruption that you always necessarily think of, right? Like it's. It's like cronyism and doing things for people that can do things for them on the island and, and this kind right. of stuff that angered... The American way. Yeah, kind of, I suppose so. As a Canadian, maybe I shouldn't comment on that. I, I can <laughs> say that because I'm American. <laughs> but it's just, it's just in, like, my interest is always on the, the, the personal, the, the, the actual histories because... Um, I get bogged down when we talk about Americanism, when we talk about the the bigger political stuff, and I can actually hold on to the fact that, you know, uh, one of the daughters of one of the Americans learned to drive on Jeju, right? Like, this is where she got her driving experience during the massacre, which is just floors wow. me that that kind of stuff happened. So, you know, continuing on what we're talking about, I was one of the things that you did mention to me in the message is that um, Jeju is often overlooked for the nationalist credentials, like I said concerning uh the division and what i agree with that but why do you think that is that um, um so so what you mean why has has kind of nationalism overtaken some of these uh more ideological and political elements in terms of the the dominant representations right well why does it become like the yeah. nationalist push for like the like fighting against the division of korea become what it's it seems to overshadow the entire event uh massacre right now? Yeah, so I think that's a really complicated history, um, but um, to just think about some of the, the fast things. One is, of course, um, just the the stigma of leftism. Uh, many people were, were murdered as communists, uh, but that didn't end, of course, after Cheju 4-3. Um, there was the Yunjuaje, like the, the guilt by association system, where people were... Um, you know, uh, surveilled, uh, denied uh, entrance into government positions, denied mm -hmm. visas. Um, mm -hmm. And th these are just the overt, there's the whole psychological uh, context uh, to that. So there's a, to, to uh, achieve any kind of recognition a as victims, uh, they have to negotiate with this stigma uh, of leftism. Um, yes. So, um, uh, you know, now, 
so I think that's why there, there's always this reluctance to to kind of uh, deal directly with with the ideological context. Um, looking at it more locally, the other thing is like this is tricky, right? Because there's elements to the Cheju four three, but one of them is is partially a civil war with the people of Cheju amongst themselves. Uh, you know, this is odd to ignore the the element of the mainland rightist invasion, which mm -hmm. I think is more foundational. It's a big part, for the, right? Uh, scale of violence, um, and, and I'm, I'm of the position that the state is, is responsible uh, for the massacre, but, um, you know, there was also uh, leftist violence against rightists and, and other just opportunistic or revenge killings, um, so I yeah. think um, yeah. when the process of reconciliation happened, um, it wasn't just about honor restitution of leftists, it's also in some ways about reconciling this history uh, of civil war violence. Uh, so, so I think, um, you know, downplaying the ideological context and in, in in, instead playing on victimhood uh, is, is useful. At the same time, I think it's still a political story, right? Uh, so you can't just work with, with this kind of narrative of victims. Uh, there needs to be something um, else there. And there were uh, concrete nationalist appeals uh, to the left, right? It's mm -hmm. not like these are exclusive and it's the same uh, with the right wing as well like what's going on in Korea are competing nationalisms mm -hmm. uh, among other things so it, it's um, yeah that's kind of a long explanation but I, I think <laughs> it's still like getting with the, the it's a long and general explanation uh, so I think it's the stigma of leftism but also still trying to recover this politicization uh, and one thing to think about with the name is I, I recently got a note uh, from a, a scholar. Uh, it was actually in a, in a review for an article I wrote, so I don't know who said this, but they actually told me that now um, the Samsa Sagan name is falling out of uh, favor. Uh, oh. And instead they mentioned uh, that it's now back to, um, and I'll find the exact uh, name there, but the, the English translation is uh, the People's Protest in Korean Unification. Um, I have never heard wow. that before. Yeah, so this this could have been from a left scholar who was saying yeah. this, but this is very similar um, to the 80s uh, kind of Minjong right. uh, mm -hmm. movement where it's the uh, Hangjang uh, mm -hmm. struggle and the uprising, but they've added uh, this Korean unification to the kind of uh, struggle. That's So these things are still ongoing, um, right. and uh, I would have to look into this because I saw this very recently that now uh, there's a push... I I don't know if that's true to be honest with you because I like I talk to a lot of scholars and deal with their work here and I've yes. never seen it referred to that but it's yeah I've seen it referred to that but but I don't know in any kind of official formal context no uh, they well this goes to like one of the lines that you wrote in one of your your works is that there's a profound ambivalence as to how to properly define the event right and I spent a lot of my time talking to people before trying to like going into the different political aspects of the different names and so forth. But why do you think, th uh, what do you mean? And why do you think there's been a profound ambivalence about properly defining it? Yeah, I think it has to do again with the, the kind of, uh, political history of it mm. where first it was written off as this, uh, riot and then, uh, hang Dismissive, on. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, after kind of a claim of the uprising, uh, narrative is pushed back and then now into this sack on, which is just like, you know, it, it's, uh, in some ways it's safer to be very ambivalent, uh, mm. in your official explanations, uh, and it's more inclusive, right? Um, it, so yeah. that's uh, also, I think, very important for the local healing. And I think what's going recognition, on broadly. Yeah. Yeah, and more broadly, I think what's going on uh, in this has always been the case, but through this, there's also just uh, the production and reproduction of uh, local identity, uh, and this okay. incident has been uh, elevated, right? Uh, you're, mm -hmm. I'm sure you're aware of this living on Cheju. This is now part of... Uh, you know, the, the, um, I don't like this term. I don't love it, but I'm going to use it. Part of the imagined community of Chejuers uh -huh. is, is shared history of, of suffering and grief and resistance. Uh, this is true, yeah. But I worry, I hear a lot about reconciliation when it comes to this event, right? And I, it sometimes feels like, why they mean by reconciliation, and I think it's Tallahassee Coates who says that the term reconciliation often means with uh, the concretization of history, right? And it kind of feels like they're uh, 
I, I, I the best way to say it is that when somebody talked about nominating the island of Jeju for the Nobel Peace Prize, they keep saying that they got over the event. It's over with. They reconciled. But it's not the case when you talk to survivors, right? In some ways. Like they talk about, yeah, I can point to the houses where murderers, families of murderers still live, right? Like it's, and so I think that ambivalence is is a good way to put it because it's such a fraught and, you know, political minefield of a a situation, right? Yeah, right. Right. And I think now there's a, because of just the timing, it is now almost officially moving into kind of post-memory where there are very few uh, witnesses or survivors. Uh, so, yeah. You know, I don't think um, I don't think these calls for uh, the history being closed uh, really will, will come into fruition uh, just because of, of the way any traumatic history uh, ends. Um, so, so I think you're right to be, be kind of wary of that, but I also think they'll just because of the enormity of it and what we don't know, I think there'll be, continue to be contestations about it at all kinds of levels. Um, but, you know, when we're thinking about some of the work I do, which principally looks at, um, you know, uh, at least the stuff you've looked at uh, is more state sanctioned or at least uh, stuff that runs through the state and is supposed to be official, then there's a bit more of an effort to make it concrete um, mm-hmm. and, and right and and try to find a consensus so some of this is also just part of um you know the bureaucratization of history that was happening every (laughs) (laughs) but you know what i mean like yeah you know you you have multiple competing actors here uh, Uh and there has to be some kind of consensus or frame i actually think it's it's quite uh it's not my place to say what I like or don't like, but I do think um, the the idea of the Sakon as, as open-ended and unknown and ambivalent, um, I, I think it's actually appropriate at that level. Right, right. And so one of the things that you have written about is you talk about it being a part of a larger and broader campaign of violent political cleansing. What, what, what other aspects... So you kind of put it in a larger context. What other... Um, can you explain a little bit about these connections to other atrocities that you're referring to? Yeah, and right, and I'll try to do it without reciting my whole dissertation. It's really <laughs> challenging. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Good luck. Right, so we, we talked a little bit about the political history of left-right struggle, mm-hmm. and um, just to, to frame change you a little, the way I see it is I actually see it very much as um, – Less of an uprising, like the uprising's there, but I think actually the dominant uh, engine driving this is the right-wing consolidation and takeover uh, of the state, which is happening both uh, in Cheju and at the national level through the establishment of separate elections, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and the American help. So um, in the case of Cheju... Um, or the re-government in some ways uh, saw this as a test um, to to their legitimacy and authority both as a state but also uh, as a Cold War state as part of the American bulwark and there's this effort uh, to make an example of Jeju uh, almost as a kind of sacrifice uh, to show the Americans how good they are at preventing communists and massacring Mm, them. Um, But uh, in terms of these other massacres, well, of course, while this is going on, the Yasun uprisings happen in the south, and many of the same counterinsurgency methods uh, that are used on Cheju get imported onto the mainland. Um, And a lot of the legal structures uh, that are in place for... um, creating boundaries of citizen and non-citizen, giving um, paramilitary groups the powers of summary execution, um, all, all these things uh, get embedded into the state uh, through this process of civil war and mass violence. And then when the North invade, uh, then there's a broader effort or, or a project, I guess, of wiping out all the leftists. So I see it as a continuum, in other words, of state construction and ideological consolidation and also a kind of counterinsurgency that in some ways is also um, creating the boundaries of who is and isn't a citizen of the South Korean state uh, Right, through this process of civil war violence. So I see these events as all interconnected. I hope I didn't lose you or anyone with <laughs> No. Um, yeah, so, right, it's, so, yeah. It's really can, interesting to think of it that way. 
right? Like I'm trying to when when I start thinking of it in a larger context, uh, like like it's not just uh, because the way that I way that we hear about it, it's so singular, right? Like it's separate. Yeah. It's 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 its own thing, and it doesn't really connect to anything else, really, any of the other histories. Yeah, right? I think like um, so when I've spoken to activists about this, and you can see this at the the museum, uh, some of this stuff is is adjacent to it. Like there's a separate um, little section on on Yasun, and there's mm-hmm. a certain sense of shared uh, solidarity and mm-hmm. suffering. Um, but it's kind of um, ephemeral in some ways, or or at least um, as a side just for uh, supplementing the idea of, of the localized uh, atrocity. And I, I think in terms of, uh, you know, uh, collective memory or things, this mm-hmm. stuff it makes sense. Um, so when I when I critique it or, or put it into this broader frame, there's no real claim uh, at my end about what should or shouldn't be done in right. memory. Um, but um, now, of course, uh, one of the interesting things about Cheju and this is great is it has a lot of research institutes um, and information and documentation, uh, and it's somewhat asymmetric uh, in relationship to what's happened on the mainland, uh, where the restitution and truth process has been a lot more curtailed. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, at this point now, it's kind of like uh, the Cheju 4.3 has, has sort of superseded it even at the national level for the, the kind of a anti-leftist um, violence. Oh, that's um, interesting. I didn't, I didn't yeah, really I know that. In the, in the counterinsurgency. I mean, that's a general claim, right? Um, but some of this comes down to the local aspect as well. So, for right. example, um, the National Guidance League killings. Um, I don't love doing the, the numbers game, but... Right. There are credible uh, work uh, and evidence to suggest that the National Guidance League killings dwarfed uh, the Cheju killings in terms of numbers. Like Kim Kim uh, Dong Chun, for example, has mm-hmm. uh, said it, it could be at least a hundred thousand, uh, and I've mm-hmm. looked at the the numbers, and it just seems to have happened on a massive scale across okay. all of South Korea. Um, but it's not seen as a local event or a provincial event because it just happens at the village level and almost every village or every county uh, it, uh, basically south of Seoul is touched by this event where leftists got wiped out uh, over three months. Um, but that doesn't have the same kind of purchase uh, in national or local memory, I think for local reasons and also because uh, in the case of the National Guidance League uh, killings, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, these are officially confessed leftists. Uh, That history is uh, complicated in itself, (laughs) but uh, yeah, so... That's that's fascinating. That I, I'm not familiar with that very much. Yeah, yeah. It's hard Super to wrap your head around the, the, yeah. the kind of broader anti-left killings and what is and isn't local. Uh, it's, you know, I, 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 I did like reading your work for that and starting to think of it in that that larger context, which in Korea. And it makes it kind of interesting when Korea actually spends quite a bit of time trying to connect it with other atrocities like you've been to the park they have uh the berlin wall there they have yeah. a yeah, right. they compare it to, to to genocides and some people want argue that it is a genocide right mm-hmm. so yeah it's sure. interesting that they go out of their way to uh they or go it's, i'm not it's not a judgment or anything but there is an, a, an attempt to try to connect it internationally as opposed mm-hmm. to locally um yeah. is that is that more just a, a way to try to get under like Attention? to get the get to, well get the word out get get like to Jay just trying to globalize it in a lot of ways like they're trying yeah, to I get mean, people to know it. I think that's part of it, it right? And you can mm-hmm. think about the audience. And I can't, um, you know, from these texts, I can't necessarily read into what uh, the intentionality mm-hmm. is um, all the time. But I definitely think um, this general issue of the problem of leftism in the memory of um the korean civil war is is unresolved um Mm -hmm. and and is still fraught uh so this you know um now i won't say this in the case of uh the people of jeju or the readers but when i've done some of my work uh 
traveling to different massacre sites, talking to some of the Yujokwe or the Bree family associations, and it, it's, it changes from group to group, but a common thing that, that I'll come across is this idea that the wrong people were massacred or the wrong people were repressed, uh, mm. and, and no, very few people who were killed as leftists uh, in the memory were actually leftists. Um, and you know, I, that's probably true, uh, in a lot of cases, but there's still this, this huge stigma, uh, about that political history, um, mm -hmm. which I, I entirely understand for, from a perspective of people who, who have been, um, you know, repressed and stigmatized and basically gaslit, um, mm -hmm. about this history for so long. Um, but in terms of the problem of national memory, uh, and this goes back to uh, the issue of the People's Committees and the People's Republic, uh, one of the great what-ifs of post-liberation Korea is um, part of this politicide and this massacre, I think this point's very important, was the wiping out of an, a different idea of Korea um, that, that had potentially um, in some ways not just left, but also more autonomous government, things like early land reforms, um, all, all these ideas that were progressive got, got uh, annihilated in this period. Mm -hmm. Just shut down completely, hey? Yeah, well, uh, in a complex way, right? But the, the right. kind of straw on that was, um, you know, the massacre of the leftists. Uh, and, and in yeah. the North, it's a different history. Uh, okay. So your work focuses on and, and tell me if i'm wrong on like the politics of memory is that correct yeah and can you explain a little bit what that means because i'm not sure if a lot of people understand what what politics of memory <laughs> is that a huge i definitely oh sorry it, it's it's just interesting because i've been um in the process right now i'm still uh, advertise myself as a politics of memory scholar but uh some mm. people have said actually looking at my work it's not really about memory because <laughs> it's a continued uh political development because uh, mm. i look into the 60s but i mean to answer your question uh politics of memory are just the kind of uh contestations about how an event in the past is remembered or forgotten and who who has the power or right to make purchase on that mm. uh, yeah so uh looking at in this case in in our case like how uh, at least first the anti-communist right got to dominate the memory uh and then now there's been been pushed back mm. uh, so that's what i refer to as is the politics of memory uh just trying to deal with this traumatic past and that's like what important you work you know like just based on what you're saying obviously you two are much um more educated on the subject but just just that phrase right there politics of memory seems like an important thing to define to really understand what all happened because if you don't understand this piece because a lot of information you're telling me is new so if you don't understand this piece you're not going to understand the full the full package the full yeah, um, right. i don't know the right word to say there but you yeah yeah, and I should just say quickly, um, you know, when I set out to do this work in the late uh, 2000, the aughts, I guess we call them, um, <laughs> you know, I was, was going to be that? looking at contested memory, uh, mm. period. And then as I got into my research, more and more of it actually became uh, about this un unacknowledged uh, history of um, uh, organized and systemic mass violence and the, this kind of untold story of a broad uh, campaign to wipe out groups. Um, so yeah, you have to dig into the, the concrete history of that to understand how the politics play out right. afterwards. It's right. interesting. How did you get into becoming a Korean scholar? Yeah, um, I, I refer to myself as an accidental Koreanist. I kind of stumbled into it. Um, in my in my MA, I was doing the Vietnam War, um, and okay. I just started to see a lot of references to Korea there. And I became interested in the production of the past, um, and uh, at the time, an interest... Uh, I was a Cold War scholar, an international relations scholar, and I got very frustrated with reading texts where, like, there was a short paragraph that said, you know, 100,000 people were killed and, and nothing else. And I was like, well, I started to really hit on me just how violent this period of of world history was and how little was discussed. And at this time, 
I became aware of the Korean War. I became aware of what was going on with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Korea. And originally, I was going to look at U.S. massacres uh, like Nogunni, which you're probably familiar with, mm -hmm. or uh, some of the bombings of South Korean uh, citizens that happened. Uh, but then as, as things progressed, I became more interested in this story. Yeah. Fascinating. So that's why you, you, you like to write about the 1960-61 period, because that has a lot to do with um, memory of trying to again, figure out yeah. what happened. Yeah, in the 60-61 period, I think uh, there there has been so few uh, analyses of that period mm -hmm. and uh, what the bereaved families did. Uh, and just to give yourselves and the readers, or not the readers, the, the viewers <laughs> or listeners, uh, can tell I'm a writer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> A sense of uh, what happened, uh, of course, after the uh, 419, uh, you know, protests or revolution, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, there was in that period um, of the Second Republic actually petitions from bereaved families uh, to have investigations and the right to yeah. mourn uh, their loved ones over these massacres. This happened in Cheju, but it also happened in uh, Kyongsong and Chola. And I'm somewhat familiar with the story of Kyongsong and Chola. Um, and, uh, Brendan, can uh, I ask you a question yeah. real quick? When you yeah. say uh, kind of, you're saying publicly mourn the right to publicly acknowledge, or what do you mean yeah, by that? Even the right, I should say, even in some cases, the right to privately mourn. Uh, because, oh, um, the state actually prevented uh, access from the victims oh. to the bodies. Uh, some of these bodies have been desecrated by being burned. Um, okay, but, but weren't allowed to even access the graves, and uh, you know the the whole. Uh, complicated nature of mourning uh, in okay. Korea. And when I did my research, I found that the main issue for families was that they were being haunted uh, by their loved ones because uh, of this idea of kind of a, a begrudged spirit. Uh, so there was also okay. a very like uh, visceral, intimate reason uh, for this to get rights to okay. perform proper mortuary services. And I mm -hmm. think the public aspect also in, uh, was a political act, I think, um, to to challenge what the state had said uh, about uh, this history. Right. Um, okay. And. 6061, I think, is interesting because this is still all the survivors uh, in this history right. still quite wrong. Um, and uh, the the big question mark for me is like what happens in the village level after the massacres and um, between this 6061 period. Mm -hmm. uh, we still don't quite know a lot about it uh, during these, you know, uh, decade or so. But the Pak Junta, uh, when they uh, overthrew the Second Republic, uh, ordered uh, the mass arrest of much of the uh, bereaved family associations, um, jailed them, tortured some of their leaders, but also, I think, mm -hmm. most grimly uh, destroyed the monuments to the victims, um, in some ways desecrated their graves. Um, so you, you can see a continuation. Okay. Uh, is this politicidal logic where it's kind of like right down to the level of um, the graves. Um, yeah, it didn't end just with the kill. It just was on and on. Right, yeah, precisely. Okay. So that's what happened in, in 6061 very briefly. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm only familiar with that a little bit because of Kim uh, Hun Jun, who wrote The Massacres at Mount Hala. He's done a lot right. of work about the, uh, like the reconciliation committees and things like that. Uh, I think that's his interest. And he, I remember yeah, right. he referred to the 6061, like this very short, like one year period where there was democracy, no dictator before Park came into play um, of as like a, a, as a mad dash to like, they started uh, on Jeju, at least um, they started uh, an investigation into the massacre. Right. Yeah. So, and that was put to stop the second Park went into power. Yeah, right. Exactly. Interesting. Um, and yeah, there's different ways too in the politics of memory about how to see that event. Uh, and again, uh, the conflicts over uh, leftism in that national memory are very complicated because the National Bereaved Family Association was um, led by ex-members of the Bodo Youngmang, uh, who had been members of the Namnodong, the South Korean Workers' Party. And that was the justification for their repression was that they were leftist. Um, so in a lot of the... Uh, I think this is true of Dr. Uh, Kim's work as well, but a lot of the studies I've found is kind of like um, they were just looking for the truth 
uh, about what's happened, but it's actually there's there's uh, the politics of that era are very uh, complicated. And I've seen a lot of kind of um, leftist critiques of the state uh, start to reemerge in the 60s. Uh, mm. Cheju is a bit different, though. Uh, I, I, I see a stronger push on um, this reconciliation uh, being tied to the promises of the 419 revolution and democratization uh, and uh, the the membership involved in there were, I think, less tied uh, to to anything that could be considered uh, leftist politics. Mm. Okay, great. I, I think that's that's about all the time we have. We've gone over. That was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, I ramble and go on, but uh, no need to apologize. I wanted to hear it. Yeah, I want. I let it. It was fascinating. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on, and we'll have you on again uh, oh, if you're willing you to join us so at another more. time. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, thanks for having me too. And that was uh, Brendan Wright schooling us, and that was a lot to take in. I got to tell you, that was very impressive. I I've, I've said it quite a few times before. The the ability for people to retain such information just blows my mind. That that was really educational. Almost at some point, too educational for me because it, it was it was just so much information. It was really impressive. That's. I think this is why I focus mainly on like people and people's stories and histories because mm-hmm. it's so hard to understand the politics and it's it's grasp, just grasp it. Yeah, but it's malleable, it. right? Someone like used to do it, and he seems to be doing it really well. Yeah. So good job, Brendan. Yeah, and so until next time, I'm Daryl. She's Alexis. Our music is done by Jason Lisko. Jason Lisko. Uh, art is by Sarah Hodgkiss. Uh, I do the editing. And Alexis does our social media. And uh, until next time, be be me, you, and Jeju. Thanks, everybody. Ciao.